Welcome to Funding the Future, a special edition of Category Visionaries, where instead of interviewing founders, we interview the VCs and angel investors that back them with capital, resources, and advice. Now, let's jump straight into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Sabrina Paceman and Simon Lancaster, general partners at OmniVenture Labs. Simon and Sabrina, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brett. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. It's great to be here. Thanks, Brett. No problem. Super excited to chat. So to kick things off, I'd love to begin with some quick introductions. So Sabrina, I'd love to start with you. Can you just tell us a bit more about who you are, your background, and how you made your way into the world of venture? Yeah, absolutely. It's been a wild journey so far, but I'd say that everything that I've done in my past career has really pointed me towards venture. I started out relatively entrepreneurial. I had one of my first patents, even pre-college for something that I wanted to bring to market. And I'd say the beginning part of my career was centered around how to do that successfully and what are the hurdles that exist that prevent you from actually getting something successfully out the door. So I started a couple of different endeavors that were sort of on my own, trying to figure it out sort of by myself (laughs) as I was working through, um, and then realized that I really did have a lot to learn. And so the bulk of my career actually, prior to the venture world, was built at Apple. And there I took a couple different products from very initial early inception all the way through mass production. And that was extremely informative for me because I was able to see exactly what the hurdles are along the way and how to avoid them by making certain decisions earlier in the design process. And I really, really enjoyed that role. I learned everything that I really wanted to. And after that experience, I chose to start another company that was one of my own ventures. And the whole experience there was, can I apply everything that I learned while at Apple into creating new product for myself? And this was my first foray truly into the early stage startup world where it was actually during the time of COVID. And so not only were there the typical product concerns, but also there was all of these regulatory issues and supply chain issues that we had to figure out to navigate on the spot. And the way that we navigated it is we were able ultimately to get our product to market within six months, which we're incredibly proud of. It was regulated, patented, and we basically applied everything that I'd learned from my days at Apple to this company. And after completing that whirlwind of a journey, I realized that I really, really enjoyed living in the early stage startup space. But I actually had a lot of learnings from that period of time in the startup world and my previous Apple career that I could share with other startup founders and fell into early stage advising at that point. And that's where I realized the breadth of the impact that I could truly have. I knew that I wanted to make more of an impact in the space for the rest of my career. And that's what led us to venture. And Simon, we've known each other for 10 years. Definitely, let's get into your background as well. Cool. Yeah, thanks for me. It was great. Always great hearing about your journey and always quite inspired. So yeah, I really do love what you said. Everything that we've done, I think, has pointed us towards the path of early investing and maybe forward looking back then it might have been tough but now i think it's really been an incredible journey and here we are so sabrina and i met wow like 10 years ago now while working at apple and we're both mechanical engineers overlapped in some teams that worked together and we essentially became experts in manufacturing materials and product design while at apple built majority of our experiences there. In the last six years, 
of our tenure, we were actually on partnering teams. And I, by then, this was six years in for me, I had essentially become an expert in technology scouting, corp dev type stuff, looking for cool new technologies to integrate into future products. And Sabrina was in charge of taking ideas from concept to mass production. So we interacted in that regard. And she helped to vet and decide what technologies would be able to be successfully integrated into products. And oftentimes, those were technologies that I brought to her. So we, we developed a, essentially a partnership of me doing tech scouting, her doing vetting. And that's how we established our relationship. Over time, we realized towards 2019, when, when we eventually left Apple, becoming a little bit more risk averse as you become number one in the world or number one in the industry, at least. I think that that's a natural tendency. So we eventually left end of 2019 independently, actually, and coincidentally wanting to go and essentially be still on the cutting edge. We left in search of what was next. I left for a business development role, which was a bit of a shift from me, from R&D, at an NEA-backed composites manufacturing startup. And I, over the course of the following couple of years, took them to Series C. Sabrina, as she mentioned, she left to start her own company where she designed, patented, and shipped a medical device within record time, six months, was in all kinds of recognition and publications for that. And during that time, we, we kind of reconnected and I started advising her a little bit on that. And I had been doing angel investing since Apple. A little bit of early stage angel investing or a little bit of early stage advising. I think those things often go hand in hand. And working with those startups, I got busier and busier and realized that there were great opportunities to be very impactful. And that's what we've been craving towards the end of our time at Apple. In 2021, a couple of years after leaving Apple, one of my investments or a couple of my investments actually had become so successful that a fellow angel investor, high net worth, actually offered to seed our fund. And that's kind of when I more formally asked Sabrina to join and, and create Omni Venture Labs, and we've never looked back. One follow-up question from your background there, Simon. I saw on LinkedIn that you also are ex-BlackBerry, and I think that was in like, what, 2005, it said? What was it like working yeah. at BlackBerry back then? Was that at their peak? Yeah. This is some incredible stories from the heyday of, of BlackBerry. So I graduated college in 2008. I was at BlackBerry for several years during college and did my second internship, third and fourth there. Ended up working during school for a few years. Did a variety of things, product design, manufacturing, engineering. And when I graduated, I would say that was the heyday. Right around when I graduated, the BlackBerry was peaking the iPhone had just been announced end of 2007. And I actually had an offer in hand from BlackBerry when I received my first job offer from Apple as well. So end of 2007, I had an offer from BlackBerry, an offer from Apple. And everyone was saying, of course, BlackBerry, they were doing extremely well. The iPhone couldn't even copy and paste. Kind of ironic, but that was the reality. And through like some various things that happened, including a little bit of luck and a lot of hard work 
I got an Apple offer and decided to go for it, go for the California dream, primarily because I had recently, I just prior to that done an internship at Google and essentially had fallen in love with the Bay Area and Silicon Valley and the growth potential of the Bay Area. How important do you think it is for founders and investors to be in Silicon Valley and the Bay Area today? Yeah, this is a great question. I think that there's certainly still a tremendous amount of capital in the Bay Area, and there's an incredible spirit of entrepreneurship in the Bay Area that is very, very hard to replicate, and I haven't really seen it anywhere else. That being said, there are many great early-stage startups outside of the Bay Area. So one thing that we often do is essentially serve as a connector or a local kind of grounding landing spot for those startups, finding startups overseas in Canada and Europe, et cetera, and bringing them here and connecting them with, with the local, at least the local venture ecosystem, if not also talent pool, et cetera. Makes a lot of sense and, and super interesting. Now, I'd love to switch gears here and let's dive a bit deeper into the fund. So can you just tell us a bit more about the thesis behind the fund, the types of investments that you do, and just any other details that you can share? Yeah, absolutely. So OmniVenture Labs is focused on pre-seed and seed, but our whole mission is to unlock human potential. And that's what really, really drives us. And we're doing that through investing and accelerating the fourth industrial revolution. So we all know that manufacturing is something that is very critical to our economy at large, but it's very antiquated and inefficient at this point. That said, in the next 10 years, it's supposed to grow to $25 trillion. So the digital transformation of industry is making this antiquated industry venture backable for the very first time. And it's only being accelerated with the rise of AI. We have a lot of really interesting investments in this space to give a little bit more context. Some of our favorites include Factor.io, which is an AI-powered tool that is working to predict supply chain disruptions before they happen. Very, very cool. As we know, the pandemic made a really shown a spotlight onto all of the issues with our supply chains. And so we're very interested in that type of company. Dister is also another company that is an AI-powered tool that is making technical job functions a lot more efficient. And it just released a feature where you can recursively complete really complex technical engineering tasks completely autonomously. And we think that's going to unlock engineering teams as we move forward into this next generation. And a third company that we love is Carbon Mobile. And they're an incredible enabling technologies company that, through Carbon Fiber, is completely reimagining the way that products can be designed. And this has impacts not just for consumer electronics, but also for automotive and aerospace down the line. And this is probably a dumb question, but I see different definitions everywhere. Can you define deep tech for us? It's a great question. The area of deep tech that we're specifically interested in is industrials and manufacturing deep tech. Simon, do you want to dig a little deeper into that? Sure. I think taking a step back for a second, it is true that everyone has their own definition for deep tech. I think because it is very broad. The reality in most cases is that the underlying definition relies on defensible and typically proprietary intellectual property of some sort. So these are companies that have oftentimes bigger upfront R&D efforts, R&D pushes, may require a little bit more capital upfront or significantly more capital if it's a hard tech, deep tech. 
And beyond that, you know, you've got all kinds of additional bolt-on definitions, but that's essentially our broader definition. And if we double click on that into the space of deep tech that we're focused on industrials and manufacturing versus other funds maybe focused on med tech or underlying AI even could be considered deep tech or quantum, another typical deep tech space. Our area of industrials and manufacturing is really just that. It's it's the industrial and manufacturing sector at a whole, which is really, really huge. And within that, we see the digital transformation of, of the industry or industry 4.0, robotics, automation, applied AI, supply chain tools as the high growth venture backable area within that that we are focused on. And when you're first speaking with founders, what are they typically coming to you with? If it's pre-seed, is it just you know, a, a couple of founders and an idea? Do they have like an MVP? What do they typically have when they come to you and, and you're considering writing them a check? We love finding founders incredibly early. And as you pointed out, Brett, a lot of times the concept and technology is very strong but the business case isn't quite there. That's one version of the persona that we see. And a lot of venture capitalists are scared by that because they don't quite know how to vet product market fit before it actually exists. That's actually where Simon and I are quite differentiated because we've each spent time on both sides of industry, both at big tech, looking at pitches from startups into big companies and on the other side of startups trying to pitch to big companies. We can figure out where the product market fit actually exists and how we can help get an individual startup to that final phase where they're ready to start pitching to customers. And so in deep tech, there's a lot of different verticals and stages, I guess you could sort of perceive them from. Sometimes it looks like there is a a founder who has been working at a very large tech company for a long time and has a lot of experience with one type of problem that is the worst part of his current job, and he's leaving to solve that specific problem. That is a very strong founder persona that we love to back because they're tenured and they know the industry and they know how to solve it. Other times, though, there are founders that have percolations of an idea based off of things that they've seen, not just in their own job function, but in others. Um, And that's something that we can help them vet as well. So there's a couple of different types. And is there a specific skill that you look for when you're having these conversations with the founders? Is there like a skill that you see them have? You say, yep, wow, they've got it. I want to invest in them. And if so, what is that like number one most important skill? I think we believe greatly in perseverance. I would say, however, that storytelling is underrated and maybe we can double click on that. Essentially, we invest in very early founders, oftentimes before they've even incorporated their startups or first check-in, as you might say. And these founders, like Sabrina was saying, they've they've oftentimes paved their own path, taken road less traveled at incredible odds. And that that is, I would say, the easiest thing to look at is what have they overcome, especially if they're a little bit later in their career. That being said, most of our founders are also very technical and they often underestimate or are underdeveloped in the area of storytelling, which is extremely powerful. They're often assuming that others will understand the technical superpowers of the product they're building without maybe 
taking the length to give the background and actually do proper storytelling. So that's an area that we often coach and, and help founders with. I'm really a believer that telling a personal story and and story for your company is key to fundraising and marketing and business development and definitely a really important area for technical founders to focus on. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. Yeah, that's something I see a lot with the podcast. Yeah, I have a lot of founders come on and sometimes they're very, very technical and they cannot tell a story. They want to talk about the capabilities. They want to talk about you know the features and the technical aspects of their product, but they can't weave together a story. So if a founder comes to you and that's the case, how do you help them learn that skill and nurture that skill and really develop that storytelling skill? Yeah, Brett, I love that question. We've helped with that in a couple different fronts with a couple of the companies that have come through. On one aspect, sometimes the founder has iterated so closely on a single problem that they forget to understand that there's a much larger picture at play. And so the nature of being able to be a good storyteller is not just obviously explaining the product that you've built, but understanding how it's going to weave into the lives of the people that you're going to be impacting and also the market at large. One specific example of this is one of our founders from Carbon Mobile. Their go-to-market originally was simply a Carbon Mobile phone. And it is an incredible phone. It is absolutely the lightest one on the market. They have a lot of excellent technical benefits that they have spent a lot of time working on. But as they were making their pitch to how this is actually going to change the industry, they were so narrow in that they were thinking that they just wanted to you know, be another phone player or another just consumer electronics player in the market. And after working with them and realizing their underlying IP, we were able to realize that their story is so much bigger, that their underlying IP fundamentally changes the way that any product can be designed, not just in consumer electronics, but also automotive and aerospace even. And recognizing that the vision of what you've created can have so many more layers of impact is very fundamental to the value that we provide when we we find startups for the first time. And that comes from our experience with, you know, we've seen so many different types of patents, we've seen so many different types of business models, and we've seen so many different types of go-to-markets that we're able to sort of pick and craft any company that comes through to us. We can sort of picture the grander vision from the get-go. Where does this expertise of patents come from? So Sabrina, I know you had mentioned that you had a patent secured within, what was it, six months for your medical device? And then Simon, I think on your LinkedIn, I saw 50-something patents. Where did this come from for you both? I think Sabrina and I both worked on our first, very first patents prior to starting at Apple. But certainly the vast majority of my 50-odd, I think over 40, are from my days at Apple in a variety of many, many different areas across the board. I was kind of the expert generalist, double-clicking on many different areas where we were lacking experts in. I would kind of do deep dives and collaborate a lot. So a lot of my patents have named inventors 
from other departments or other companies even where I was collaborating with. And what do you advise founders to do when it comes to the patent process? Like how early on should they pursue a patent? Are there times where it's you know, maybe not worth it for them to do it or it's too costly for them to do it? What's that general advice? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a great question. I think tough to give very general advice, but I'll, I'll give it a try. I would say patents are always worth considering. Probably the best general advice I can give is for a startup to file a provisional patent shortly before their first public announcement or release of the product or features. And a provisional patent in the U.S. is very, very economical. You can basically just data dump all your notes and anything like diagrams, pictures, et cetera, used or created during product development into a Word doc and submit that to the USPTO. That literally can be a basic provisional patent. Don't get sucked into spending a ton of money on either a full patent or necessarily a properly drafted patent from a lawyer if you don't have that budget. Certainly if you do, consider it, but otherwise definitely still consider a provisional patent and you can do that on your own fairly scrappily. We're talking hundreds of dollars here to to kind of get a priority date. And then from there, you have a year to convert that into a full patent. And during that time, hopefully you can get funding and raise money to file your your full non-provisional patent. One thing to add on top of that is that while patents are one way through which you can protect your IP, there are, it's not the only way, and it's certainly not the only way that we prefer. Mm-hmm. Founders, when they, when they come through to us, sometimes we don't recommend that they file a full patent immediately for price considerations. And sometimes it's just faster to iterate on product and develop your moat through the work that you're actually doing as opposed to the nuances of a patent. But certainly provisional is an excellent sort of security policy yeah. just in case. But yeah, patents are not the make it or break it reason why we would choose to invest in a company, certainly. Yeah, actually, I want to expand on that a little bit. When we say IP, and we also emphasize that we have patents, we don't necessarily correlate one-to-one IP with patents. There is definitely other types of IP that can be very valuable for early stage startups. We have startups that have no patents, but they have incredible data moats, right? They have hundreds of thousands or millions of, of data points from customers that are completely proprietary and would be very, very hard for anyone to replicate. That is definitely like trade secret intellectual property and a great data moat. In addition, you can have proprietary supply chains. You can have proprietary licenses to other people's IP, especially if they're exclusive licenses. For example, you may have an investor or partner that owns a particular resource that's very difficult to obtain or IP, right? If you're licensing, if you have an exclusive license to IP from, for example, that's owned by any division of the U.S. government, that IP is much more valuable. Even though you don't own it, the U.S. government is is essentially backing it and is going to protect it if anyone sues you. So that's that's another, or if anyone infringes on the patent. Hmm. Super interesting. Now, let's switch gears here a little bit and let's talk about pitch decks. So I'm sure you two both see a lot of pitch decks. 
Are there any common maybe red flags or just dumb things that you see founders do that you wish they wouldn't do? The thing that I think is one of my personal pet peeves is when there isn't a competitor slide. And the reason why I think that's so important is because it really shows that you understand not just your own product, but also where it lands within the market. And while we certainly don't require founders that come to us to know where their product absolutely fits within the market immediately, I think showing that slide just lets you know, lets the investor know at least, where the founder thinks they land amongst everyone else in the space. And also it will influence the way that they've developed their product, either away from certain products or towards certain companies as well. So my personal pet peeve is definitely the not having a competitor slide. Yeah, I see that a lot on the podcast, or I guess I should say I hear that a lot on the podcast when I'm interviewing founders. I'll ask about the competitive landscape, and it's shocking the amount of founders who say there are no competitors, which maybe mm-hmm. it's true, but it seems like there has to be, you know, maybe the question is like a competitive alternative, but there mm-hmm. has to be something there, I think, most of the time. Totally. Even if it's a distant competitor or kind of more of a peer than a competitor, like a comp, I think it just shows that you've done the homework and the rigor. It's a very useful data point for us. And obviously the market has been pretty crazy the last, what, 12 or 18 months, or I guess it's been crazy for longer than that, but it's been crazy going down um, for the last, let's say, 18 months or something like that. So given the state of the market today, what are you advising founders to do? What do those conversations look like with the portfolio founders that you have? Brett, great question. I think what we've been seeing, particularly recently, is that having a path to profitability is more important than ever. Gone are the days where you can continue to raise round after round without actually having profitability and a product you can actually market. So we're trying to find creative ways for our founders to monetize earlier, potentially even before their Series A, so that they're ready to hit the ground running with real juicy financial numbers for their next round when it's needed. And what are those conversations like then? So let's say you know, I, I come to you and I'm, I'm pre-seed and I raise money from you and you say, OK, Brett, I need you to be profitable. And I would say, OK, how? <laughs> like, where do I even begin to do that? You know, what's like the next level of that conversation and working through you know, how to have a path to profitability when a product is so early and new? I would say... Again, this is going to come down to storytelling. I think there's some great stories that can be told as to the path to profitability through partnerships or early pilot customers showing traction in pre-revenue manners, but still significant traction. We look at letters of intent, MOUs type things as well. Early pilot customers with large enterprises that are essentially putting their name on the line working with a new technology is also showing potentially a good traction there depending on this the exact scenario makes sense and now let's talk a little bit about category creation so what are your views on category creation do you have founders come to you and say hey we're creating a new market category and you know, they have a, a vision for that is it too early for them to you know, have those types of conversations? What's your general view on category creation? It's the dream of any investor to stumble across a founder that's genuinely creating a new category. It's something that we're, of course, always open to hearing about. I think the reality of it, though, is 
it's very challenging to actually create a new category. And we always sort of enter a little bit skeptical, but it's totally possible. So I think in every instance, we obviously want to create differentiation, certainly between whatever the founder is building and whatever else is inside of the market currently. And we basically enter the conversations with sort of a tapered sense of reality to understand what parts of the pitch are actually real and what parts we can help them fill the gaps in as they grow. And final couple of questions here. What types of opportunities are you especially excited about right now? Are there any you know, specific areas of the market or just technologies that you're super passionate about? Anything that you can share so that if a founder is listening and they're building something there, they know they should get in touch. Absolutely, Brett. Really excited right now about the intersection of AI and robotics, where I believe this, these two areas, the intersection of these two areas is going to come to fruition through something called soft robotics. And this is an area I've been super geeking out recently, actually with a, with a good friend, Gus, over at Boost VC. We're about to launch our first collaborative article on this space. So stay tuned for that. But I do feel that recent advancements in the accessibility of reinforcement learning models and the lowering of costs in for those models is going to greatly accelerate the application of specific developments required for many robotic use cases. So to give some examples, like currently with legacy rigid robotics, which is what you what you think of what you imagine when you think of a automotive paint line or welding line, those are big industrial rigid robots. They occupy 99% of the market. There's a tremendous amount of upfront engineering required to get those set up. And it's fairly inflexible once they're set up for almost any real world use case, because these conventional robotics are very rigid and essentially of infinite strength and stiffness. So you can imagine you know, if you have an arm with infinite strength and stiffness, or at least much, much higher compared to a human, it's going to have to interact with the world around you differently. So if you just plop a rigid robot into a workspace and tell it to learn, essentially with modern in reinforcement learning or AI models and a vision system, it's likely to essentially destroy most of its workspace in the process of, of learning. Soft robotics, on the other hand, which have been in development for several years now, they are of a stiffness and strength much more akin to a human and therefore much better suited for a type of scenario where soft robot is essentially watching and learning from a human without destroying its environment and learning through interacting with the environment akin to, you know, similar to a child, essentially. That's an area that, that we're really excited about. And yeah, please talk to us if you're working in that space. And final question here. I know predictions are are tough to make sometimes, but I'll put you on the spot and, and have you do it here, Sabrina. How do you anticipate the market's going to unfold or what do you think is going to happen in venture over the next year? I think in order to predict the next year, we have to take a look closer at what's happened in the past two years. We've noticed certainly that the pendulum has swung away from value that's created by just unique business models towards more underlying fundamental technologies from the sort of more exciting new things towards back to the unsexier things uh, historically. But that said, AI is really accelerating the sort of fundamentals and unsexy markets 
to something that is venture backable for the very first time. And so what we're seeing is, of course, on the prediction of every venture capitalist, I think this year is that AI is going to change a lot of industries, but how it's going to change is where we're placing our bets. And we think that AI enabled tools that are actually augmenting humans rather than replacing humans is where we're putting our money and our bets. And it's something that we're very excited about here at Omni. And there's a lot of really exciting things happening, particularly, as Simon mentioned, in the robotics space, but also in sort of the underlying fundamental technologies behind manufacturing. Amazing. I love it. Well, we are over on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we do wrap, if there's any founders listening in that want to get in touch with either of you, where should they go? What should they do? We love LinkedIn. We're very active on LinkedIn. Reach out on LinkedIn or through our website at omnivlforventurelabs.com, omnivl.com. Amazing. Simon, Sabrina, thank you both so much for taking the time to chat and share some of your perspectives. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I know the audience is going to as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. Thanks a lot, Brett. It was great. Keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 